going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome to BDE, the big digital energy podcast. Thanks for joining us today. We got me, Frack Slap, or as that guy called me last week on the show, the guy with no hat. I put on the hat today. That way we can like really throw him off with both my hats. So we can't do that line again. Got my boy Chuck Yates, aka Nimble Fatty, on the show. Show number two. Show number two. Let's get into it. So we have to start this show off with natural gas prices. Natty G just running up to six dollars. Yeah, six bucks, over six bucks. Dude, I, I hear the I the hear last, the... the last ticker I saw right here was uh five dollars and ninety cents, but we, we touched six. I think we went up to six, yeah, six twenty eight. I mean wild. it's it's been a chorus all morning, hadn't it? I told you Natty was going to seven bucks an M. Of course it was like they said that four years ago. Yeah, well, one, you can't rain on the parade of Nat Gas bulls. Like, you got to let them have their time to shine. So even if it was seven years ago, like, ever since I've been in the oil and gas industry since 2010, there's been people that are bullish on Nat Gas, <laughs> and they just get crushed year after year. So it's good to see them actually getting their, uh, their time. But it's just kind of wild. I mean, if you look at what's happening over in Europe, and then, you know, we haven't even hit winter yet. And so what do you think happens over the next few months as winter comes on up in the Northeast? And, you know, we just had we have more pipelines getting blocked, too, uh, that I saw in the news. So um, it's just kind of ironic while Nat Gas is running up to six dollars that people don't want to increase supply or transmission. Do you think uh, we continue to see a run up over the next few months? I mean, we got three big things here that I, I haven't seen talked a lot about. One you know, Brazil gets two thirds of its electricity from hydro. They've had a massive drought. So they're sucking in LNG more than they ever have. So that's kind of one thing going on in this perfect storm of hot summer, Hurricane Ida, Europe being a mess, needing it. The The key is less about hitting winter vis-a-vis -vis what our expectations for winter. Because right now, what's on the table in the natural gas market is it's going to be a colder than expected we, uh, winter. And so as we roll out of the shoulder months into winter, it's going to be, are we as cold as we think? Because I'll tell you what, nothing can be more misleading than personal experience. And every natural gas trader is sitting there remembering the ERCOT disaster and how they made $500 million per MCF. And they're storing natural gas right now as we speak. So it's going to be where we come in vis-a-vis -vis expectations on winter. Yeah. So if you're in the comments, let us know what your price prediction is. Let's say by December 31st, 2021, I will I'll throw out some price. Whoever's the closest to that, that price by the end of the year, I'll give you some price. I don't know what it's going to be. Nice. I don't know. What should we give away? We give away a lot of shit. Maybe like... We do I'll give you some free AirPods. AirPods are always like AirPods are always Everyone appreciated. AirPods. No one's going to get a pair of AirPods and be like, I don't like this. So uh, hold on, though, with that, Colin, two other points we need to make real quick on natural gas. You look out four years, the market's telling you it's three buck natural gas. So it'll be interesting to see if we hit seven, eight bucks, 12 bucks this winter. 
do fundamentals reset and maybe we're not in a $3 world, we're in a $5 world. So that'll be fun uh, to watch. The other thing, and this is just me and my take on it, there's a shitload of natural gas out in the United States that if we want to drill for, we can get. And at some point, the incentives will be there. We used to have a de- line of demarcation out in the Delaware. If you got west than that, there was too much natural gas and you couldn't make money. You can make money at that today. Yeah. Uh, Manchester United says that his prediction is $93 and uh, 75 cents. So <laughs> dude's going to be listening good to Boston. <laughs> if it's that much, uh, I don't think that you'll need a free pair of AirPods. Hopefully you've gone long and made some money. So anyways, uh, getting into this first story, um, Norway's 1.4 trillion sovereign wealth fund is set to go net zero on carbon dioxide emissions by 2050. And, you know, you start seeing all of these, uh, you know, we're literally talking about high gas prices right now. And in my mind, one of the biggest drivers for high gas prices right now is just you've had a uh, divestment in fossil fuels. So, um, you know, whether that's in uh, drilling and producing nat gas or pipelines, uh, you know, federal government over here in the U.S. uh, banning uh, permits. So it's still interesting to see, you know, Norway going uh, this direction. Give me a little bit of insight on this because I believe this pension fund is the biggest fund in the world. That's that that's the biggest fund on the uh, on the planet. And just a little bit of a history lesson. I mean, you go back to the founding of this republic in 1758. The religious society of friends prohibited their members from being in the slave trade, which really led to the abolitionist movement and ultimately the end of slavery. You know those folks better as the Quakers. And I just give that as an example, because in my lifetime, what we saw happen in South Africa with apartheid, Paul Neuhauser put forth a shareholder resolution in 1971 asking GM to withdraw from South Africa, which really started a movement. And when apartheid was done in 1993, there was $625 billion worth of capital screening every deal for ties to South Africa and prohibiting that. So the key with Norway sitting there saying we have emission standards is one, the investment. 1.4 trillion is a shitload of money. But the second thing is going to be the tentacles that come out of it because it's, hey, we'll invest in you. Let's see your emission levels. Oh, by the way, go push that on your customers. Go push that on your suppliers. And the exponential expanse you see from this investment the other thing this does this gives every other investor permission to do this on the planet so you know we had i had dan pickering on the podcast a few months ago and he talked about esg investing being a tidal wave and it was not necessarily government-led it was going to be investor-led consumer-led company-led this is what he's talking about yeah yeah, I think, um, you know, we've seen this trend of institutional funds and, um, you know, the universities, the endowment funds making this push. You know, in the U.S. has really been led by student bodies putting pressure on their on the endowment funds to divest out of uh, oil and gas and other fossil fuels. So it'll be interesting to see the impacts that that has over the next 10 years. So it's going to have a big impact on investing. 
And people always say, well, what turns that around? You know, it's, oh, if we start making money, I think it's got to be more than we start making money for people. CIOs have to start lagging performance indices by significant amounts over significant periods of time for them to say, oh my gosh, I got to get back into energy because I'm not doing my fiduciary duty to my institution. So think, think like a good two or three years of lagging the baseline indices before Harvard says, okay, maybe we need to look back at hydrocarbons. So it's, 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 it's going to be painful, the capital withdrawn from the industry on the way out. It's going to be slow and sticky getting it back. Someone asked, can someone please fact check Chuck? <laughs> Don't go fact check Chuck. Come on now. So in our uh, next story. They didn't like the Quakers. What's wrong with the Quakers? They make a fine oatmeal. Yeah, I heard from uh, my boy Donnie Davis before we recorded this. Give me a quick little fact about cornflakes actually being invented um, to stop the sex drive of Quakers. So um, we'll have to dive into that. We'll need some check on Donnie on that one. <laughs> I'm now changing my Amazon Prime order for tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'm not going to go with the cornflakes anymore. Um, so really exciting news over at uh, Blueberry Capital, raising $150 million on their next fund. Um, They're able to close it out. Blue Bear, really interesting story here with these guys. Um, you know, Ernst Sack over there, he came on our podcast, Oil and Gas Startups podcast. He was one of the first 10. That was back three years ago. So it's really exciting to see how far that they've come. Um, they are a energy tech focused fund. Um, they have some in oil and gas tech and climate tech. But we actually got Ernst to give us a little video, talk about their uh, current raise and some of their investor base. So let's go to that real quick. Digital Wildcatters family, this is Ernst Sack from Blue Bear Capital. Wanted to share the update that we just announced the final close of our second fund. Uh, we're very fortunate that the fund was oversubscribed at 150 million. It's the latest vehicle we've got set up to fund innovation and energy infrastructure and climate solutions. As many of you know, we've been at this for uh, almost half a decade now within Blue Bear and for a long time before that with excellent partners, important partners of mine like uh, Vaughn Blake, Carolyn Funk, Rob McGinnis, Tim Copra, and many others. Part of the family here at Blue Bear we don't get to talk about as much as the actual LPs, the limited partners, the investors behind Blue Bear. A uh, few were mentioned in the press release, but we actually have over three dozen leaders from the private equity world, largely focused on energy and industrial private equity groups that some of the big name and specialist funds, many of you out there know well, and uh, bigger institutional investors from a handful of organizations that have actually been building and investing in the world's most critical energy and infrastructure businesses for really over a hundred years. So really excited to bring to bear, not just some innovative new uh, tech entrepreneurship, talent uh, network development, but also really what we think is world-class talent in taking the best ideas from conventional energy, engineering, procurement, development, financing, and applying it to what we call the industrialization of renewables. And we look forward to doing a whole lot more in networks like Houston and bringing some of the best talent from the energy industry to the fastest growing markets in, in our world. All right, so big congrats 
to my boy Ernst and everyone else over at Blueberry Capital. Really excited to see what they do over there. You can see his uh, his jacket was Go Expedi, one of their portfolio companies, uh, one of the hottest startups in the oil and gas space. So what I actually really like about Blueberry Capital is that uh, you know they focus on all energy tech. It's not just renewables and climate tech. They actually look at technologies that can make oil and gas more efficient and more sustainable too. So I think that that's pretty cool. And you know nowhere in their press release you say you know we're just focusing on renewable projects solar wind you know they're really focused on the digitization of those sectors because i mean at the end of the day if we're going to have an energy transition there are a lot of assets what i'll call old energy assets that are bought and paid for and work really well in the united states and the new energy assets are going to have to talk to that so there's a massive amount of plumbing on the back end terms of software digitization that's going to have to happen to make all that stuff work. And so, you know, previous segment, we were talking about uh, billions of dollars towards this tidal wave. And we can all have opinions whether the billions of dollars are bubble, going to make money, not make money. There will be money made when you spend trillions of dollars changing an economy like we're planning to do in energy transition. So, I haven't met the guys yet, but just reading through their their pitch material, you know, if you think about it, who made more money, the people mining for gold or the general store that sold them the panhandling equipment, the blue jeans and the and the groceries? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm sure that we'll have uh, Blue Bear back on our podcast sometime soon when they make it down to Houston. And then speaking of energy tech, we had another raise uh, pop off this week that I was actually really excited about. And. Funny enough, it was another $150 million raise. Seems to be the uh, lucky number this week. So it was Lilac Solutions, which is a lithium extraction company. And so I'm probably going to butcher this. So they may have to come on the show sometime and actually give us the correct definition of their technology. But essentially, they have these beads. And when you run brine water through these beads and through the system, they're able to extract lithium out of that brine water. I get excited about that because we put out billions of barrels of brine in the oil and gas industry every year here in the U.S. And I'm going to pull up this chart real quick uh, from Mark Mills. Chuck, why don't we talk about this chart a little bit? You know, it kind of shows what it takes to build one battery at a thousand pounds, how much material we need in terms of metal. Because if you think about Lilac Solutions, I mean, the big key is they can do they can mine lithium cheaper but also with a much smaller footprint. And one of Mark Mills' points, and if you ever get a chance to hear Mark Mills speak, he's just the best when he talks about this, is if you think about it with an internal combustion engine, the parts needed to do it, extracting the oil to turn into gasoline, you're taking out so many pounds from the, uh, from the earth. To be able to do this with electric vehicles and all the metals that you need, I mean, strip mining to get a little bit of lithium is bad and it's just you've got you know for uh the as the chart shows you've got to take half a million pounds of dirt in effect to move to get all those materials and so if we are going to make this transition it's going to be it's going to be um, technologies like lilac that can do it with much smaller footprints because moving half a million pounds of stuff to get one battery that's just not feasibly possible yeah and you know some of their backers lilacs i think their biggest backer is uh lower carbon uh, capital which is actually a uh, chris saka's fund 
And I think that they're fun. Their tagline is, you know, they're funding companies that unfuck the planet. Um, but even these guys are super hyped up about Lilac. They said, I've been in the game a long time, but before Lilac, I've never seen a company where their product is 10,000 times faster than the competition. So kind of back to your point, uh, you know, the footprint that Lilac has compared to other lithium extraction uh, technologies, but also the speed at which they can extract it is pretty promising. And I think it was uh, Clay Dumas over at Lower Carbon also said that, um, you know, we can't have EV adoption and battery adoption if we don't have technologies that allow us to scale and manufacture in a more sustainable way. Well, and let's just say it. I mean, they're not using 10-year-old children out there with pickaxes to get it as well. So that's truly important. Yeah. So uh, Landman Dad asked, is Chuck still asleep? I think he woke up a couple minutes ago. So <laughs> Thanks, Landman Dad. <laughs> we got him back with us. And then uh, had a comment that said this graph doesn't look very environmentally friendly. So, yep, it's uh, definitely a thing that we got to take into consider consideration the second order effects of strip mining for metals when we are talking about scaling up batteries. So next uh, next story that I want to move into is uh, we got someone kind of talking shit, not really talking shit. Running smack. Hedge smack. fund manager James Jample has announced that the run-up in oil and gas commodity prices is the biggest dead cat bounce in history. He runs a $187 million hedge fund that has a strategy that focuses on short-selling fossil fuel company stocks under the thesis that industries where volume is declining, where demand is declining, have a lot of trouble making money. Be honest. I think there's a lot of companies that are making money right now at $6.00 that gas so do you think a dead cat bounce is realistic or accurate term to call a rebound in the market when we still have 100 million barrels of demand a day i mean the market isn't in decline in terms of demand it keeps rising no you're exactly right and i've never met james I'd love to have him on the podcast if you're out there listening james come on and let's talk about it because I've only seen read an interview with you, and so I want to make sure I get this straight. But he's talking about his so his fund did really well in 2020. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess he predicted Corona and <laughs> that we were going to burn 10 percent less hydrocarbons because of a global pandemic. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're we're approaching pre-pandemic levels. We're using 100 million barrels of oil a day at $70 a barrel. That's a big, huge freaking industry. And there's no end in sight. I don't care what people say. Even if we adopt all these electric vehicles, I mean, just the diesel you use to mine all those metals will far and away replace the gallons of gasoline we don't burn because we have EVs out there. So it'd be interesting to get to get James in here, because I think he's falling prey. One of the things he talks about is politics and that if Biden gets elected, there will never be another pipeline build, et cetera. So I think he's falling into that dichotomy we see folks talk about that are outside our industry and they miss the fact that, yeah, guess what? If Biden's elected, it's gonna be bad for infrastructure build, drilling, drilling on federal lands, guess what? Less supply means higher prices. So if he's betting against the commodity price because Biden got elected, I think he uh, I think he missed it. Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. 
And then, you know, we've been talking about, um, we've had a couple of things in the show today already talking about, you know, whether it's uh, institutional funds divest out of oil and gas or the run-up in uh, climate tech funding. And one thing that I thought was interesting from this week was uh, Diamondback Energy is ending routine flaring by 2025. And they said that this is part of their net zero now plan, which I actually really like the branding on this plan because all of these companies, big corporations are putting out plans to be net zero by 2050. And I saw a comment on Twitter the other day. I don't know. That's like me announcing that I'm marrying a Victoria's Secret model in (laughs) in 2050. Yeah, it's going to happen. See, you know, CEOs don't have a problem making those commitments because it's not their problem. It's going to be the next guy's problem, right? And so I like, hey, what are you doing today? And ending flaring, especially when you're an operator out in the Permian Basin by 2025, seems to be a pretty big deal. Well, one, I think it's a really big deal. Two, it is the right thing to do. I mean, we we should be cognizant of it. Three, I think the challenge for us as an industry is we don't seem to get credit in a lot of places for incrementalism. If we have an emissions level of just to make up a number, 100, and we cut it to 10, I don't think we do a good enough job of getting credit for for that out in the world. And so... I like what they're doing here because part of what we as an industry have to do is do a much better job of selling how we do great things for this world, you know, uh, i.e. the Alex Epstein, the moral case for fossil fuels. We do great things and we're doing it more and more responsibly. So I like the step by Diamondback. Hopefully we can get Case on here to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Manchester United asks, how do you stop routine flaring? You have to have uh, you have to have some to clear lines and do maintenance. Um, you know, I don't know what Diamondbacks approaches to this, but I do know they they reduced flaring by 58% from 2019 to 2020. So it's not something that they're saying that they're going to do. They are currently doing it. And you can get me up here on, on a soapbox talking about, you know, some of the solutions like Bitcoin mining. I posted a slide on Twitter the other day that showed ConocoPhillips up in uh, the Bakken is actually using Bitcoin mining as part of their flare reduction uh, policy. So um, don't think that Diamondback is doing any of that, but maybe we can convince them to get on that train. We'll have to get Case on here and see if we can uh, get him and uh, Travis to buy into that. But yeah, I mean, they're already doing it. So, you know, I think that they should have a plan of how they get to net zero by 2025 in terms of reducing flaring but be interesting to see if they can pull it off so we have uh, a couple comments here let's see uh texas railroad commissioner jim wright is boosting bitcoin as a flaring solution in the permian hell yeah jim wright was actually on the oil and gas startups podcast last year in 2020 uh pretty sure we talked to him on that show definitely put that bug in his ear that they needed to be promoting some bitcoin uh mining and then well and 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 let's just take it one step further because we always taught emp folks always tied bitcoin mining to flared gas stranded gas and it's more than that it should be just like you run your gas through the pipeline you decide whether you want to strip out the liquids Mm -hmm. or not you should be tied to bitcoin mining and make a decision every day should i mine bitcoin or should i uh or should i sell into the spot market because even 
at prices we're talking about today at $6 M, you know, $50 uh, a Bitcoin, it's still better to mine Bitcoin. And uh, I think uh, the industry is remiss if you're not connecting to that and having that optionality. we got a window here that we can mine Bitcoin yeah. to do this. 100%. Yeah, Bearded Hatchet dropped in the uh, chat on nat gas prices and said prices will be hotter than a spoon at hunter biden's house so it's gonna be <laughs> flaming hot i like that it's the last story of the day hold on real quick with on natural gas yeah. i mean this in all sincerity because the guy was always really nice to me i didn't know him very well but i wish aubrey were alive to see this i really do there was no greater no greater uh, bull for natural gas in our industry so his vision's coming to life right so we're seeing that play out for sure um on oil and gas deals we had one that you're pretty uh i don't know if you're excited about it but you're pretty no this is on the magnolia and uh intervest deal yeah so this kind of goes back to what dan pickering and i talked about on the podcast a few months ago when he came on his whole point was returns lead investors back you know, he was talking about make energy great again. He was talking about, you know, we're up 40% year to date and all this. And my counter back to Dan was, yeah, but how many sh shares have actually traded hands? You know, what kind of volume are we talking about? Could you raise a billion dollars today to go drill? And the answer was no. But this is showing a little life in yeah, terms this of... Is the first equity offering I've seen in... Yeah, we had Pioneer. So yeah. Quantum, Quantum did a, a sale of some Pioneer earlier in the summer. But before that, I don't even remember when it was. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long time ago. And so we've actually got... Um, so just, just so you know, um, Intervest owns about a third of Magnolia or so. Uh, they were part of the formation. They handle back office type type things for Magnolia. So this is just in the general course of business, they need to sell shares to send back to their LPs. But we, uh, we got uh, Travis Hancock, CFO of Intervest, to send us a little clip talking about this. Hey to my favorite galactic viceroy, Chuck Yates. Thanks for having me and my bull on uh, BDE today. We were really pleased to be able to do the Magnolia trade last week after some market fears on China and the U.S. Fed quieted down. Although we're a selling stockholder in the company, we're really pleased with uh, their story and their strategy. But at the end of the day, have to continue to send distributions back to the LPs and our funds. Steve Chazen, who's the CEO of Magnolia and the former CEO of Oxy and his entire team have done a great job executing on the strategy that we came up with when forming the company in 2018. People may not know, but Magnolia provides investors at least four things, moderate growth, low leverage, positive cash flow, and positive real earnings. So many companies in our industry have tried to pivot, well, Basically, the entire industry has tried to pivot to Magnolia's strategy, but that's where they started from day one. It's pretty incredible to look at Magnolia's stock price and look at how well it trades, along with the investor base that they have, but that really just speaks to the quality of the company, what they offer investors, and the following that they have. Again, we couldn't be happier with what Steve and his team have done, but it really shows their leadership for the industry, in the industry, uh, and we expect good things to continue to come. Thanks again for having me on. Look forward to coming back on soon, maybe in person, 
in chatting with you, Colin, and some of the, the other Digital Wildcatters guys. Thanks so much again. Have a good day. Be well. So big props to Travis for sending us in that insight. Look, if you're a CFO at an oil and gas company and you're not coming on BDE to talk about your deals, what are you doing with your life? Yeah, no, the, the neat thing from this deal, kind of the reports from investors I talked to and some of the bankers is one, they did a bought deal on this and just kind of for the non-finance folks out there, traditionally an offering is where you hire an investment bank, you file an S1 if it's an initial public offering, an S3 if it's a secondary offering, you're already a public company and then the bank takes you out for two to three weeks on the road. You talk to investors, everyone knows the deal's coming, but the bank is really playing agent for you. So they'll charge you a fee of let's call it 3%. Generally, when you do an offering of some sort, your stock price goes down just because of dilution effects and the like. And so maybe your stock will trade down three or four points. So all told, it costs you kind of seven points to do a traditional offering. With a bought deal, the investment bank is actually buying the stock from you at a pre-negotiated discount. So if a CFO is sitting there saying, I can be on the road for three weeks, I'm going to trade down, I'm going to pay them a fee, 7%, would you sell to a bank overnight for you know a 6% discount? Generally, the answer to that is yes, because this is how most of the deals are done these days. The pricing on this was less than 3% of a discount. That that meant the bank felt really strongly that they were going to be able to buy at this very, very small discount and then turn around and sell it into the market for more than they paid for it to make their money. So that really speaks to investor demand. It still comes back to it was a $125 million offering. So not a huge one. Yeah. And this is arguably as good a management team as we've got in this sector. Good assets. They were, as Travis was saying, they approach the business, the way everybody is doing it today. And that was the way they started the company back in 2018. So a little glimmer of hope, a little glimmer of hope. So we don't end on negative Nancy. That's great insight, Chuck. But EFT wife just wants to know, you look chilly. Where's your hoodie? <laughs> she also misspelled her name. It, it's not it, EFT wife, it's ETF wife. So I guess she's gotten to the uh, fun game. It, it makes <laughs> me look fat on the, you know, the camera adds 10 pounds, Colin. Landman dad dropping in on the uh, Bitcoin minings. He says, so we have a moral case to produce fossil fuels, but it's also cool to burn it for something as stupid as a fake currency. My read, right. I don't, a trillion dollar asset class. How's that fake? I mean, dad, come on. I expect better, better view. The amount of gold that has been mined in the earth fits in an Olympic sized swimming pool. And that is, it's not because it looked good on the queen's neck that gold retained its value or is the store of value over time. It's because there was a limited amount of it. There's a limited amount of Bitcoin. It's no more ridiculous than gold. Or Bitcoin boys, landman dad. He said, this guy makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> is that the guy without the hat? <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Before we end this show, we got we to gotta do our, our infamous segment, the finger of the week. Who's getting the finger of the week this week? Let's see who gets the.
This week's finger of the week goes out to the climate terrorist. That which, New Yorker magazine. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> I would never. Yo, let's just go well, blow one, up a pipeline. I thought it was clickbait. I was like, okay, you know, maybe like they're just embellishing it a little bit. I got two minutes into the podcast and two minutes in, the dude starts talking about how when SUVs started becoming popular in Europe, him and a group of people were going around slashing the tires. Like, can you imagine being a grown ass man going around slashing tires because you don't agree <laughs> with something? And now they've escalated up to like from slashing tires to blowing up pipelines. And we've already seen this. We did. There was a story. I think uh, maybe about six months ago in a rail car, uh, a train getting blown up and I think it was somewhere up north. And upon initial investigation, they thought that it was malignant activity, someone blowing it up. So they're out here doing this. They're blowing shit up. And the New Yorker is just kind of sitting there publishing content on it like it's cheering them on yeah cheering i think them it's on. Like, cheering them on <laughs> yeah. i don't think it's just publishing like what i hate about like the new yorker is like it's all like a nice pretty font on the web page and <laughs> right. it's like how to blow up a pipeline i'm like what the fuck is wrong with y'all <laughs> two things one i'm sure those guys aren't riding their bicycles over to plant the bombs just because you're taking a smaller car than an suv we're going to take, right. take our hybrid and blow up this yeah, We're going <laughs> to plug in our, our EV Tesla to be able to go do it. The second thing is setting off bombs and blowing stuff up spews shit into the air that's, you know, global warming material. Well, so, that's, what I, that's what I was saying with that real car when, incident when it happened is you're literally defeating the purpose of your mission because now you just spilled oil all over the ground. Now you have a contaminated site. So do you really love the environment or are you just, you have pride and ego and you're just trying to prove a point and that this stuff should not be, um, should not be celebrated in the media. I mean, that'd be like, can you imagine like posting something about like ISIS, like in a positive light, like, Oh, how to blow up an airplane. It's the yeah. same exact shit. This is energy infrastructure that the nation is dependent on. And these people are out here just getting like a free pass to talk about how they want to blow it up. And the, the problem is, the serious problem here is it detracts from the thoughtful discussion we need to have. We need to have a discussion where the producers of hydrocarbons say, you know what, probably the reason, and we'll have a segment on this at some point. Mark Mills is actually doing some work that uh, is going to be interesting, but Probably the burning of hydrocarbons is taking parts per million of, you know, call it 300 to in 1950 to 425 today. And the temperature has risen. So we can say probably that is happening at a thousand parts per million. Like when you go into a greenhouse, Colin, because that's they're pumping CO2 in there to make the things grow. It's uncomfortable. I don't want to live on a planet with a thousand parts per million. I mean, I'm sure we can, but it would be uncomfortable. So we do need to take that seriously. The other side, though, has to take seriously the fact that your life expectancy, your quality of life is two, three, five, ten X what it is instead of burning wood and dung. And unless we have those two things on either side, we're not going to have a thoughtful discussion about how to make that transition going forward. And it's shit like this that doesn't allow for it. Yeah, exactly. So with that note, finger of the week, we are uh, ending the show, ETF Life. It's all right that you can't spell. I just thought you're out here trying to uh, pitch your new fund on 
fidelity or something, but maybe next week you can have the correct spelling on your name. Guys, if you haven't, subscribe to our YouTube channel so you get a notification when we go live. Subscribe to our newsletter, BDE newsletter. Go to digitalwallcutters.com. It'll be there on the homepage. Subscribe to, subscribe to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, <laughs> the podcast, and happy heavenly birthday, James Broach. We'll see you guys next week.